Good morning. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you this morning. It is always a blessing to share this good news with you, especially on a day like today, Palm Sunday. The title of our sermon is The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. We'll be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 37 to 44. If you have your Bible, please turn to the scripture, and I would like to invite you as well to rise as we, as we read the scripture this morning. Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 44. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Father, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word this morning. Bless the preaching, the proclamation of your word as true. Father, bless the hearing of your word. Let it stir up faith within our hearts, Father. Let it, let it stir up belief in this King called Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. So as I read this story, the first thing that catches my attention is this. Jesus is acting really strangely. He is, um, he's not acting like himself today, if, if you can say such a thing about Jesus. He's acting out of character. And why do we say this? Because up to this point in the Gospels, he has resisted every attempt to publicly proclaim him as king. Now, if you remember, um, John tells us that when Jesus fed the 5,000, he actually went to hide himself up the mountain because he knew they would try to take him and forcefully make him king. He didn't want that. Even when Peter made his famous confession, confession, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, what does Jesus do? He tells the disciples, don't tell anyone. He's been keeping a low profile for three months leading up to this day, but on this day he is not keeping a low profile. He's the one who gets the whole party started. He tells the disciples, you go and get the cold. When the people come and they put their cloaks on it, he doesn't stop them. 
When they spread their cloaks on the road, he doesn't stop them. When they grab the palm branches and they begin to sing, he doesn't stop them. Today, he is making a public statement. But what is he saying? Today, Jesus is officially, publicly presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah. If someone were to ask you what Palm Sunday is about, it is about Jesus presenting himself publicly, officially, as the Messiah. The people, the disciples are singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. What do the Pharisees say? Verse 39. Teacher, not king, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're the ones saying it. Whatever claim you're making today, we do not accept it. As the leaders of Israel, we call you teacher. But what does it matter? What does it even matter to the Pharisees? Why do they care? Well, because the Messiah is not just a spiritual title. It's a political title. And we need to settle on this point a little bit, so let's take some time on it. So, the Messiah is the true king of Israel. But if we get our Bibles right, we know he is also the king who is to reign over every other king. In that day, it meant that Pilate was no longer the highest authority in Judea. In fact, as of this moment, he's trespassing on Jesus' territory. It meant that even Tiberius Caesar was no longer the highest authority in Rome, He was now subject to an even higher authority, the king of kings. If we think about today in terms, Palm Sunday, in terms of today, it means that every monarchy on the face of the earth is just a temporary arrangement because the earth is already the inheritance of someone else. Every dictator, they're just plain make-believe because it is written that all authority in heaven and on earth already belongs to one person. His name is Jesus. Even democracy, our democracy, as, we, as much as we love it, as much as it's done great things for us, it means, Palm Sunday means that democracy is not the final or the best form of government for this world. This is a big deal. And the Pharisees got it. They knew it. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because if Pilate hears about this, and he would have been in the city with his soldiers, Rome would retaliate. In fact, they had said it. They had said it when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they said, if people believe in this guy, Rome's going to come. And they would take away our city. They would take away our temple. He's got to go. And here they are singing Jesus' praises. What does Jesus say to the Pharisees? This is remarkable. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. 
I've seen a number of inauguration ceremonies, and you know, usually you get celebrities at these events. Recently, at the one in the U.S., we had, you know, Lady Gaga, we had J.Lo, we had Garth Brooks. But you know what we've never had? We've never had stones coming alive to sing a song of worship. These are the real Rolling Stones, I guess. But you've never had stones do this. And this tells us something about this Messiah. Not only is he invading the government of this world, he is invading creation itself. Beginning with these, these men, and going all the way to stones. And he's doing it with supernatural power. This is troubling. This is very troubling, actually, because you've probably seen the movies, you've read the books, you've heard the stories. Every time that a guy shows up who wants to take over the world using advanced technology or alien technology, it never ends well. It really doesn't. What are they going to do with all that power? What sort of government are they really planning to set up? It doesn't matter if their name is Thanos or Sauron or the Messiah. It really doesn't matter. This is bad news. Or is it? What sort of government is Jesus coming to set up? We just have to keep reading. Verse 41 says that as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. As he approached Jerusalem, let's just stop there for a minute. Jerusalem is the capital of the Messiah's government. It is where David had his throne. It is a seat of power for the Messiah. Do you know what Jerusalem means? The city of peace. The city of peace is the capital of his government. His government is about peace. Do you know where we first encounter Jerusalem in the Bible, one of the earliest mentions? It's a remarkable story. It's in Genesis chapter 14. And there Abraham went to retrieve Lot after he was captured. And as he was coming back, a man by the name of Melchizedek met Abraham at a place called the Valley of Shaveh. It was a valley. This man's name, we're told, Melchizedek meant the king of righteousness. And the man had two titles. The first title was that he was king of a city called Salem. So he was known as the king of peace. But he was also a priest of El Elyon, a priest of the Most High God. And this man met Abraham. You can picture the moment. And do you know what he brought? He brought bread and wine. And he blessed Abraham. Today, another man is in between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem, in the exact same valley, the valley of Shaveh. And he is the only one who is truly righteous. He is the real king of righteousness. 
He claims to be the king over Jerusalem, the king of peace. And he meets Abraham's descendants in the exact same spot. And to those who would believe in him, he will break bread and drink wine with them. Isn't this remarkable? So much is coming together in this story. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it, and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if you had only known what would bring you peace, who is he talking to? He's talking to the city. But then he repeats himself. He says, if even you, who is he talking to? Now he's talking to the people. He's talking to the city of God, to the people of God. He's weaving them into one and he's saying to them, if you had only known what would bring you peace. The city of God, the city of peace had not known peace for thousands of years. The seat of power was subject to the power of Rome. The people and the city that God placed at the top of Mount Zion to be a light to the world, they were living in darkness. If you had asked them what would give them peace, they would have told you, we want the Messiah to come and kick these guys out so that we can be free and let them stay out. But is that what they really needed? Is that the kind of king that they needed? I find I'm usually quick to judge Israel. But if we think about Jesus' words pointed at us this morning, what would be our response? Do you know what will bring you peace? Do you know what will bring you peace? Not just peace that will last until the end of the week, but peace flowing like a river for the rest of your life. Do you know what will bring peace to our cities, to our countries? Do you know what will bring peace to this world? I'm not talking about do you know what Trudeau should do about this or that, or the UN should do about human rights violations somewhere. Do you know what will bring world peace? Isn't it true, actually, that the idea of a world at peace is something that we no longer believe can be accomplished. When we use the term world peace these days, what we actually mean in the way that we use it is that it cannot be done. Someone says, I want a Ferrari. You say, grow up. I want world peace. It's never going to happen. Well, in the name of Jesus, it will happen. It will happen. Because coming to us out of Scripture this morning... This is remarkable. Coming to us out of Scripture is the one of whom it is written that the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be known as Wonderful. Amen. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But it doesn't stop there. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Because he came to Jerusalem. He is in Coquitlam today. 
His peace is at work here this morning. Because he came into Israel's brokenness, he is at work. His peace is at work in my brokenness and in your brokenness. There is no trouble that would outlast this Messiah. There is no circumstance that would ever conquer his peace. Of the increase and the greatness of his peace, there will be no end. Let God's people say amen. In fact, everything that Jesus is doing on this day is intended to help Israel understand what will bring them peace. What do we mean? Come closer. Yeah, to the TV. Come closer. And pay attention to what Jesus says next. If you had only known on not tomorrow, not yesterday, on this day, what would bring you peace? He said it's hidden from your eyes. You can't see it. You don't understand what I'm talking about. Again, he says, why? Because you do not recognize the timing of when God is coming to you. The timing Other versions say the day of your visitation. This day is unique in the divine calendar of God. It's about the time when Jesus presents himself. That's how we know what he's about to do. Now, we have the benefit of knowing what this day is. We call it Palm Sunday. We've got years to look back and say, oh yeah, there's Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. But how is Israel supposed to know the time of this? I would like to actually invite you to an Old Testament scripture, and this is where we're going to end our sermon today. It's the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and while the slides go up, I will give you a bit of context. So the year is 536 BC, and Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. And as he reads, he does some calculations. We're going to do a similar thing this morning. And he realizes that Israel's servitude was about to end in 538 B.C., so about two years from when Daniel was reading. So he thinks that Palm Sunday is coming. He thinks that God is about to come and restore Israel and bring the kingdom. So he begins to pray a prayer, and it's the prayer that God told the nation to pray when they wanted to repent and have him bring the kingdom. Daniel begins to pray this prayer on behalf of Israel. And so God says, Gabriel, Gabriel, you got to come, come, come. Stop this guy. It's not your time. We've got a ways to go. <laughs> and so Gabriel shows up. He says, dude, sorry, Gabriel, um, Daniel, it's not time yet. Let me tell you what's about to happen. So let's take this one at a time and listen to what Gabriel says to Daniel. On our first slide, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your city. Remember? The people and the city. And now Gabriel tells Daniel the six things that must happen in order for there to be peace. 
Verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9 says, These seven weeks have been allocated to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, so to fulfill everything that has been written, and to anoint the most holy place. These are the things that will bring peace into this world. They must happen, or they cannot be the kingdom of peace. Seventy weeks, Gabriel says. But Gabriel doesn't tell us when we start counting. Now, one of the things, the difficulty that people have with this prophecy, and one of the things that we struggle with is we don't understand some of the technical words. So let's start with the first one. The word week means seven. You say uh, a dozen is 12, half dozen is six, a couple is two, a week is seven. So you can say a week of people, and you mean seven people. And you can say a week of days, and you mean what we would call a week. So 70 weeks means 77s, which some of your translation will put it as. So Daniel says you need 490 years, not two years, before these things will happen. So that's slide number two, sorry. Number three, Daniel, I mean, Gabriel continues. He says to Daniel, you are to know and to understand that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The city will be built again with streets and moat even in times of distress. That Gabriel says there will be 69 of the 70 weeks, 69 of it, will be required before the Messiah will show up. And it will, we, you should start counting from when the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We're on slide three now. When did the word go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? We'll find out very shortly. But 69 weeks, if we do the math again, just multiply by um, seven, and you get 483 years. From when the word goes out to the Messiah will be 483 years. Well, moving on to slide four, Nikki. Um, the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah, you remember the story? He was the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, Longimanus, and he got permission to go and restore it the, the walls, not the temple, the walls, in the year 445 B.C. Again, it's written in the scripture. You can look at the date, the reign of Artaxerxes, and you can back, figure it out from there what year it was. 445 B.C. From 445 B.C. until the Messiah comes, Gabriel says, will be 483 years. Well, in, we need another key now, we're getting close to the end, in order to see if Gabriel is right. And the key is for you to recognize that a year, prophetic year, is 360 days, not 365 like we use in our calendar. 360 days, um, slide five. So, 483 years is 173,880 days, 
uh, prophetic years, but we've got to convert it to our calendar because everything we're doing is A.D. So we divide by 365. If you divide 173,880 by 365, you get 477 years. 477 years from 445 B.C. is A.D. 32. We're getting close, aren't we? Did Jesus show up on A.D. 32? What did he do in A.D. 32? Well, slide six shows Jesus started his ministry in A.D. 28. It's written in the book of Luke. He, he said he began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That's A.D. 28. He attends three Passovers. You find them in the book of John. It's when he's coming for his fourth Passover that he's crucified. Four years to A.D. 28. And what do you get? A.D. 32. In fact, if we want to be even more precise, and there will be resources for this, the decree went out March 14, 445 B.C. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on April 6, A.D. 32. To the day, it is 1,733 days, 733,173,880. To the day. Have you seen a God like this anywhere? The day that the Messiah visited Israel. And now just to wrap this up. Gabriel broke this period into two. He said there will be seven sevens. The first seven is 49 years. And again, if you do the research, that will give you 397 B.C. That's the year that Malachi's career ended. 397 B.C., until Gabriel shows up again to proclaim to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that he would have a son, is almost 400 years. That's where we get the 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. The point of this is to show the integrity of the Word of God and to help us understand why Jesus had to wait until this day and exactly what he was doing on this day. But Gabriel ends in verse 26 with this, these words. That's where we end today. After 62 weeks, the Messiah will be killed, and he will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Was Jerusalem destroyed in AD, destroyed in AD 70? Yes, it was. Was the Messiah killed? You have to come back on Good Friday to find out. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We know that this is heavy lifting, but prophecy is the inheritance of your church. And every once in a while, we have to lean into it that we might boost our faith and our confidence in your word as truth. And this prophecy, Lord, in your faithfulness, in bringing it to pass, we find confidence that this kingdom will be established. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Hillside.